This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Hello, this is Eric Rostad coming to you right outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I'm going to cover Between the World and Me by ta Coates. This is book 14 of 52 for my 2020 reading list. In my first job out of college, I was required to attend a two-day diversity training session. This was an off-site meeting with, with roughly 30 people from the company. It ended up having a really big impact on my life. Uh, the, I, I remember the the session as being very tense and and emotions were high. I largely just kept quiet and and kind of took everything in. But there was this particular back and forth that I vividly remember. And it was between the facilitator and a white man who, who worked at the company I was working at. And the facilitator was asking this man, he said, would you let your daughter marry a black man? And this, this white guy said, no, I wouldn't. And then the facilitator asked him, he said, well, do you, do you consider yourself to be a racist? Do you think you're a racist? And he said, no. And this, this, this white guy, he, he was a Christian. And this whole exchange just really made me think. And, and the, the question that came to my head was, what would cause a person who held a belief like that to say that he is not a racist? And it, it actually ended up turning into a sort of crisis of faith for me as, as a result. And, and the reason why is, is I was thinking, if, if these things could be so deep within us that we couldn't even recognize it, what, what was I missing? What was I not catching in my own life? And, and why, for the church I was going to at the time, why were we, were we not talking about these things? If these were such deep-seated things in our in our minds, if they impacted how we looked at every person we came across, why were we not talking about these things? So these these questions just made me kind of take a step back even further and question all that I'd been taught, especially at church. And you know, why why were why wasn't this addressed? Why why wasn't this big elephant in the room addressed? And it it caused me to question my faith. And I just wanted to take a step back and, and consider each thing that I'd been taught and to see if, if it was true, to really examine it and, and to know why I believed what I believed. And, and I'm glad I did that. I think it led to a deeper faith in the end, but it, but it all started with that question. What would cause a person who held a belief like that to say that he was not a racist? This book, Between the World and Me, gets into that very question. Between the World and Me reframes the discussion around race. It's a letter that ta wrote to his son, Samori, and it reads like a personal narrative. It starts off with the word son, and then comma, and then the rest of it is, is his words to his son. He describes this great barrier, this breach between the world and him, and specifically between his body and the world. And so to quickly summarize, the problem is not Charlottesville. The problem is not specific police shootings. These things are symptoms of a much bigger problem. 
and the fr- the problem is framed in the context context of three different phrases or terms that repeat throughout the book. And these are people who think they are white. That's the first one. People who think they are white. Number two, dreamers, as in people who are going after the American dream. And number three, black bodies. And there's a story in this book that kind of ties these these three ideas together. And I'm going to read this story. And it, it, it's across a number of pages. I'm just going to kind of skip to the different parts of it and, and then describe each of these three different things uh, after, after this story. So here again is, is Tanahasi speaking to his son. Perhaps you remember that time we went to see Howell's Moving Castle on the Upper West Side. You were almost five years old. The theater was crowded, and when we came out, we rode a set of escalators down to the ground floor. As we came off, you were moving at the dawdling speed of a small child. A white woman pushed you and said, Come on! Many things now happened at once. There was the reaction of any parent when a stranger lays a hand on the body of his or her child, and there was my own insecurity in my ability to protect your black body. And more, there was my sense that this woman was pulling rank. I turned and spoke to this woman, and my words were hot with all of the moment in all of my history. She shrunk back, shocked. A white man standing nearby spoke up in her defense. I experienced this as an attempt to rescue the damsel from the beast, and he made no such attempt on behalf of my son. And he was now supported by other white people in the assembling crowd. The man came closer. He grew louder. I pushed him away. He said, I could have you arrested. I came home shook. It was a mix of shame for having gone back to the law of the streets mixed with rage. I could have, I could have you arrested, which is to say I could take your body. This is the import of the history all around us, though very few people like to think about it. Had I informed this woman that when she pushed my son, she was acting according to a tradition that held black bodies as lesser, her response would likely have been, I'm not a racist. Or maybe not. But my experience in this world has been that the people who believe themselves to be white are obsessed with the politics of personal exoneration. And the word racist to them conjures, if not a tobacco-spitting oaf, then something just as fantastic, an orc, a troll, or a gorgon. I'm not a racist, an entertainer once insisted after being filmed repeatedly yelling at a heckler. He's an N-word. He's an N-word. Considering segregationist Senator Strom Thurmond, Richard Nixon concluded Strom is no racist. There are no racists in America, or at least none that the people who need to be white know personally. That this is the foundation of the dream. Its adherents must not just believe in it, but believe that it is just. Believe that their possession of the dream is the natural result of grit, honor, and good works. There is some passing acknowledgement of the bad old days, which, by the way, were not so bad as to have any ongoing effect on our present. The metal that it takes to look away from the horror of our prison system, from police forces transformed into armies, from the long war against the black body, is not forged overnight. This is the practiced habit of jabbing out one's eyes and forgetting the work of one's hands. To acknowledge these horrors mean turning away from the brightly rendered version of your country as it has always declared itself, and turning towards something murkier and unknown. It is still too difficult for most Americans to do this, but that is your work. It must be, if only per- to preserve the sanctity of your mind. End quote. 
that story ties in all of all of those different things. The the people who think they are white, the dreamers, and the black bodies. There's another statement that uh, he he says to awaken the dreamers, to rouse them to the facts of what their need to be white, to talk like they are white, to think that they are white, which is to think that they are beyond the design flaws of humanity has done to the world. End quote. So these statements were all very jarring. These 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 words, these these terms and phrases. Uh, the people who think they're white, I, it just kept coming up over and over. And I just kept thinking, what, what does he mean by this? What is, what is he talking about? Uh, I, I consider myself to be white. I, I check the box that says white on, on those forms. So I don't, what does it mean? People who think they are white. I, I am white, right? But I think what he, what he's getting at here, and it, it, it's in that statement there, which is to think that they're beyond the design flaws of humanity. So it's it's white. It, it's beyond uh, skin color. It's 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 a, a idea that that it's that there's a purity that they're beyond that beyond the design flaws of humanity, and that's what he's getting at with people who think that they're white. And then for dreamers, what what does that mean? That, that there's a cost to the dream, to the American dream, and he says that cost is black bodies. Well, what does that mean? I you you always think of you always hear of the the American dream is the the ideal. So again, is this, this reframing? Uh, people who think they are white. It just reading that. Why, why is he saying that? And then dreamers, uh, kind of a negative connotation of of the American dream. That there that there's a, a negative side to it. And again, this reframing. And then what about black bodies? Also very jarring. Why why does he keep saying that? What is what does he mean by black bodies? Uh, in one part of the book, he actually puts a number on black bodies. And he says, at the outset of the Civil War, our stolen bodies were worth $4 billion, more than all of American industry, all of American railroads, workshops, and factories combined. And the prime product rendered by our stolen bodies, cotton, was America's primary export. Our bodies were traded from the White House by James K. Polk, end quote. When he was talking about it in terms of black bodies, what it did in my mind is it, it, it made things tangible. It wasn't just this idea of race or this idea of racism that it could just live in someone's mind and, and, and disrupt someone's mind, but it, it, there was a cost to it. And the cost was tangible. There, there was a price tag. There was a cost to race, to racism. And so it took it out of this realm of inner thoughts and turned it into a, a tangible result. There's an a example he uses in the book, and it, it comes up in quite a few places. So uh, ta goes to Howard University, and, and he makes a friend, friend there. And later on, we, we find out that that friend has been shot by a police officer, and he's been, he's been killed. And he's, he's in his Jeep. Uh, he doesn't have a weapon. He he he's just he's shot. But the cop that shot him was a black man, and so it, it didn't fit into this narrative of, oh, this is just a white, a white guy following the American dream, and a black man made the white man fear his sense of security, and so justice went out the window, and the the black man was killed. No, here Tanahasi's point is that. As I started off this segment, it's not the problem is not individual shooting. There's there's a there's a bigger problem. This is a deep seated societal problem. It's not the individual shooting. 
you know, we just had this shooting of, of Ahmad Arbery while he was on a run. And I recently saw a video of a man describing what the news of that killing did to him. He spoke into his phone and it was just, you know, just his face in the phone. So you're, you, when you're watching this video, you're just looking at this man speak. And he, he, he spoke for eight minutes and recorded it. And, and it was very powerful. He had tears in his eyes for most of the time. But the part where he broke down the most was when he talked about the two white men who shot Ahmad and how they probably went home that night, sat on the couch, maybe they got a drink and they watched TV and they thought they had gotten away with it. And for two months, they thought they had gotten away with it. And that's what tore this man up when he was, when he was talking about that killing, that they thought they had gotten away with it. Tanuhasi mentions a number of these types of shootings in the books. In 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 the book, they're they're ones that you would recognize from the news. Uh, they've they've been over the past you know five five ten years, and he speaks about them in those terms that that a black body could be removed in the name of safety and that justice would not be served. This idea that they that people could think they had gotten away with it. Remember, this is a book of Tanahasi speaking to his son, trying to teach his son how to navigate this world. He wants to tell his son that there is justice, but these shootings point to the opposite. These shootings say that black bodies can be removed at any time. The prison system, the, the white man shouting, I could have you arrested. They just reinforce that black bodies can be removed. But these things are the symptoms. They point to the bigger problem. And so when media focuses on these, these individual events, it allows people to point and say, I'm, I'm not a racist. I'm not like them. But ta point is, this is a bigger thing. This is a bigger, deep-seated problem. In the final segment of these podcast episodes, I usually cover the one thing, my one key takeaway from the book. And the reason I do that is, in the past, I would try to remember a, a number of things from the books that I read, and I would end up forgetting all of them. I would, I would look at books on my bookshelf and not be able to, to tell you one thing from that book. But I, I discovered that if I just tried to remember one thing, just one thing, I would be able to re- recall that one thing but then that would also help me to recall other things from the book. So if, if I just focused on that one thing, I, I would actually end up remembering more things. So I, I make that a practice in, in my books that I, 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 re, I remember one thing and I highlight that on the, on the episode. So my one thing from this book, uh, the thing I've been thinking about since I finished reading it uh, last week, is the proposal that ha- that uh, Tanahasi has for for moving forward, and so I'm just going to read the paragraph, and this comes towards the beginning of the of the book. Perhaps there has been at some point in history some great power whose elevation was exempt from the violent exploitation of other human bodies. If there has been, I have yet to discover it. But this banality of violence can never excuse America, because America makes no claim to the banal. America believes itself exceptional, the greatest and noblest nation ever to exist, a lone champion standing between the white city of democracy and the terrorists, despots, barbarians, and other enemies of civilization. One cannot at once claim to be superhuman and then plead mortal error. 
I propose to take our countrymen's claims of American exceptionalism seriously, which is to say I propose subjecting our country to an exceptional moral standard. This is difficult because there exists all around us an apparatus urging us to accept American innocence at face value and not to inquire too much. And it is so easy to look away to live with the fruits of our history and to ignore the great evil done in all of our names. But you and I have never truly had that luxury. I think you know. That's the end of that quote. So I, I, I liked that proposal. The to take our countrymen's claims of American exceptionalism seriously. That is, I say to propose subjecting our country to an exceptional moral standard. And it, it harkens back to some of the most effective ways to initiate change or to, or to call someone to change is to take them back to their founding documents or the reason they got started. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. did that. He, he, he said, this is, these are your ideals and you're not living up to them. And that's what ta is doing here as well. But to do that, it might involve confronting unpleasantries. It might mean confront, confronting unpleasant thoughts in, in ourselves. And so how do you go about doing that? Well, a first step could be in, in reading a book like this. It provides a different framework, a, perhaps a different way of, of thinking and of seeing things from someone else's point of view. This is a 152-page book. I read it between May 12th and 13th, so it just took me two days and about three and a half hours total. It was suggested by a high school friend, and this was the same friend who suggested the Graham Greene book, Power and the Glory, that I covered in an earlier episode this this year. So he has been spot on uh, with, with books so far. But it's a short book. It, it, it will not take you that long to read it. And, and I suggest that, that you do so. It's a very powerful book. It, in my mind, it has a similar importance to, to a couple other books I've read for this project. And the first of those is Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. And also the autobiography of, of Malcolm X. Those are two very powerful books. And I, I would put this, this one on, on the level of those. So to recap, very powerful book. I, it reframes the discussion about race and it, 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 it puts it into a, a way of thinking uh, that you're not going to be comfortable with. It will make you uncomfortable. It, will, it may help you make sense of the reactions to the shootings that, we, that we've been seeing on the news. It may help you to understand people that you have not been able to understand. It may help you to see things in yourself that you don't like. But it's an important book in that sense and, and one that, uh, that I think needs to be read. So that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear from you. You can uh, write me a letter and send it to P.O. Box 1333 in Franklin, Tennessee, 37065. You just address that to Eric. Rostad, that's Eric, E-R-I-K-R-O-S-T-A-D. You can also email me, and that would be at Eric, E-R-I-K, at booksoftitans.com. I'd love to hear about 
uh, your thoughts uh, if you've read this book uh, or or just your reading your reading plan your reading list in general. I started this project because I wanted to to find the best books and to discover the best books. I, I hate wasting time on on bad books, and so my goal is to help you find the best books as well. So. You can go to my website, booksoftitans.com. I have a number of tools there to help you find the best books. You can also follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter at Books of Titans. Right now I'm reading Destiny Disrupted. It is a book about history from an Islamic point of view. It is very interesting. Uh, it's, it, it's tied a ton of pieces I've had kind of just jumbling around in my head of maybe little bits and pieces I've known of, about history, but uh, it's from an an Islamic point of view, but also just from more of a a Middle East point of view. And it's, oh, it's been, it's been really good. So I'm enjoying that book. I skipped Hamlet because I just have too much going on in my mind right now, and I could not focus on that one. So I'll probably go back to Hamlet uh, uh, next here. Uh, And also I have Crime and Punishment coming up, which is one of the books that really got me in love with reading. So I'm looking forward to revisiting that. I haven't read it in, in over 20 years. So looking at uh, looking forward to, to reading that and, and pro- probably covering that on an upcoming podcast episode. So until, uh, until then, keep listening, keep reading, and keep thinking. I'm out.